COP26 wraps up. Securing digital technology and mapping the India-China border tensions. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast with me, Olivia Nelson. Now that the COP26 summit is over, Dr. Robert Glasser and Anastasia Kapetis break down the commitments made at the summit, where they fell short, and what needs to be done to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. Hey, good to be with you, Anastasia, to talk about the wash-up, the wrap-up of the climate COP that finished last week with some interesting outcomes. I noticed an analyst in The Guardian said that the Glasgow Climate Pact for all its restrained and diplomatic language, looks like a suicide pact. Others have been critical of it. I think in Australia, Matt Canavan, for example, has said uh, it's now a green light to go full speed ahead with coal. (laughs) What are your reactions to this outcome? Well, probably not to either of those extremes. I would just probably note the remarks of Christiana Fieres, again um, in The Guardian, she, she looks at the disappointment that a lot of civil society um, feel in terms of the outcomes of COP, but she has this to say, and I, and I think that's right, this is a massive systemic change on the scale that human civilization has never seen before. And of course, she's referring to energy transition. And what happens with a really, really big systemic change is that it's hard to get going. It feels like it's taking forever in the middle. But once the momentum hits a certain point, that's a tipping point and things change very, very suddenly. And so she's saying, look, we're still not quite at that tipping point um, in terms of politically and also uh, in terms of market transition, but COP26 moves us further along that road. So I think that's right. Uh, the other thing that she takes away from this is that the ambition of 1.5 has stayed in the international agreement. And that's for her a really important point. Yeah. And for our listeners uh, who aren't aware, 1.5 degrees sounds like a really small number, but it has, of course, has huge impacts globally in terms of disaster risk, uh, hazards, food security, all sorts of things. And uh, the Paris Climate Agreement committed countries, or at least in, in that agreement, countries agreed to limit warming to two degrees and ideally 1.5 degrees. And most scientists think that just given the inertia in the climate system, the warming that's already baked in because of emissions released over previous decades, we're pushing right up against the 1.5 degrees of warming, even if we stopped producing all greenhouse gases immediately. So yeah, I think you're right. This meeting, the the focus shifted from making pledges to reach net zero emissions by 2050 to a focus on actions to cut emissions by 2030, recognizing how little time we have now to reverse this, uh, to limit warming to 1.5. Absolutely right. And, and just to underline that point, the science is basically saying to limit to 1.5, 2030 is the target that we need to go to. And it has to be at least, at least according to the final COP document, it has to be 45% cut in emissions um, to keep that 1.5 alive. Yes. So if we look at what was achieved at the meeting, now there are a lot of different analyses that appeared uh, throughout the, towards the end of the meeting on what the commitments, what sort of reductions the commitments countries made would deliver. I think uh, most of them are in the range of 1.8, that warming would uh, increase to 1.8 to 2.6 or 7 degrees Celsius. So uh, all of those assumptions are well above the 1.5 degree <laughs> 
level. And the difference between them is uh, linked to a whole methodology, but also the lower numbers reflect not the formal decisions of the COP, but the commitments countries made in the margins of the COP, coalitions of countries. And we can talk about that in a second on deforestation, on methane, Mm. and other things. That's right. And there's also the other thing that is a, is a positive development is the commitment that, that most countries signed on to to yearly ratchet up their commitment um, to 2030. Yeah. So when people are disappointed, they, they focus on, you know, the 1.8 to 2.6 degrees. We're failing in, we have failed in this meeting globally to take decisions that limit the warming to 1.5. But there was, um, in a sense, a, a The delegates kicked the can down the road at least for another year because the um, delegates, ordinarily, there's this assumption that the countries will ratchet up their ambition every five years. But in this meeting, it was agreed that uh, countries, parties would revisit the strengthening of their 2030 targets in their nationally determined contributions by the end of 2022, just one year from now. So that's quite an unusual decision taken. And the fact that every country has signed up to that, ideally to come back or with an expectation that they'll come back with a much more ambitious 2030 target by 2022 is, is very important and significant. Yes, and I think it does re- reflect a public opinion in most countries as well, and, and therefore political pressure. Even in places like illiberal governments like Russia, for example, public opinion on, on climate change has changed quite radically um, in the last 18 months and that has to do with Siberian wildfires and also the record warm winters that Russia um, has experienced of late. So I think you know what that indicates is that political pressure is not going anywhere in the next 12 months. Yeah, it will only exactly. intensify. Yeah, and we will see more frequent uh, and record-setting extreme events that will, I think, feed into the politics, as you've said, uh, as well to to keep the pressure, on, keep the heat on, so to speak, for more ambitious reductions. So I'm actually cautiously optimistic that ambition is going to increase and going to increase quickly, and that we may, we are the possibility of of uh, keeping warming to between 1.5. Well, I would say between 1.5 and two degrees is looking uh, higher now than uh, as long as I can remember. It wasn't so long ago during the Paris Agreement and and before that in Copenhagen that we were looking at assumptions that temperatures would warm to four beyond four degrees as a, a realistic possibility. So this is a big step forward. It's not all the way there, but as you said, the momentum's building. What about coal? That was another interesting... <laughs> what, what about coal? <laughs> What's your what's your take, Robert? Well, you know, India. The reporting suggests that India. Well, it's actually clear. India and China stepped in to uh, tone down to change the language at the last minute uh, on the uh, commitment to phase out coal, and now the language says that uh, they're going to accelerate efforts to not phase out but phase down unabated coal power and inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. So you have these diplomatic words that are going to, instead of phase out, they're phasing down. And it's not just coal power, but it's unabated coal power, which suggests with carbon capture, the coal power can continue, carbon capture and storage, and inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. So countries, of course, if they want to, can argue that their fossil fuel subsidies are efficient, 
and that they will fo- they're focusing on carbon capture and storage. But the important thing is, this is really the first time in any of these COPs that fossil fuels and coal have been mentioned specifically in the text and also, again, contributes to this broader momentum for reductions and sends a very clear market signal that I think will reinforce the ambition of the reductions. So that's why it's so important to have the kind of historical knowledge that you do, Robert, um, about these agreements, because, again, for, for a lot of people looking on, a lot of the public looking very, very closely at these coal agreements, again, it, it's disappointing. But as you point out, there's some real progress here from some of the biggest coal emitters and coal consumers on the planet. So, again, it adds to the momentum. And as you say, the kinds of signals that the market will be picking up when they're reallocating capital. Yep. And, you know, coming back to uh, the history, one of the key factors that enabled the Paris Agreement to be signed was a commitment by the wealthy countries to help less developed countries that had, had been least responsible for climate warming because they haven't been producing all these greenhouse gases to adapt to climate impacts and to make the transition from fossil fuels to renewables. And sadly, the commitment, which was $100 billion a year in assistance by 2020, was not met. Although at this meeting, uh, additional contributions from wealthy countries brought us closer to that $100 billion mark. But yeah, I, I thought that could be a showstopper in terms of reaching agreement. But uh, again, I think the less developed countries decided that it was important to it, it was more important to mo- maintain the momentum in the exist the other provisions of the agreement than to make this uh, something they would uh, die in a ditch over. So, no. Although they did um, certainly make their disappointment clear in terms of statements. Yeah. In fact, even the words in the actual Glasgow outcome, I think, are notes with deep regret that uh, unquote that were that. Uh, they weren't able to mobilize, reach the $100 billion figure. What about the many, these side events, side announcements? They're not part of the formal Paris Agreement. In fact, some criticize them for, in a way, undermine, uh, politically possibly undermining support for more ambitious action within the COP process. They are significant. Yeah. What did you, what did you want to start off with there, Robert? Um, what about deforestation? Yeah, um, again, a, a pretty significant agreement in the sense that, again, uh, un- unprecedented, a whole bunch of countries signed up that are really very, very important to such a forestry agreement, um, such as Brazil. Yeah. And also there is that clear recognition that uh, one of our biggest tools um, to mitigate climate change is actually the preservation of wildlands, of trees, of forests, of carbon sinks. You know, this is another one of those where the critique of having these side announcements in the COP process comes up because I saw one analyst point to the fact that Brazil has already committed to ending deforestation some years ago and, of course, hasn't delivered that. And one of the critiques of these side event announcements is that there isn't a, a mechanism to enforce accountability, even the transparency of the decisions in contrast to the COP, where those mechanisms mm. um, have actually now been agreed in the rule book for... I, th- I think I think that's true. Although on the on the other side, civil society will be monitoring those agreements yes. very closely as well. So that's the one thing. 
The other thing I really wanted to talk about before we wrapped up was the finalization of carbon accounting rules. Why is that so significant, Robert? In this process, it's really important to be able to make sure we're not comparing apples to oranges and there needs to be an agreed definitions and process for reporting and to avoid things like double counting, because if one country, if we're talking about actually, if we're talking about carbon carbon offsets, for example, where important uh, rules of the road were agreed at this meeting, it's important to make sure that both countries, both the country that's buying the offset and the country that is um, achieving the offset by say by preserving forests, are not both counting a hundred percent of the offset. <laughs> Um, so anyway, so that's quite a complex process that has helped. There's also been the clearly a lot of discussion about um, carbon capture and storage, controversially because the technology, most experts think the technology is untested and, and certainly that there's a lot of uh, uncertainty in whether the capacity to do that on a large scale in any way that is any way more cost effective than switching to renewables is likely to be achieved. The pricing isn't there at the moment. It's very, uh, CCS, it's very, very expensive to do. But I think sort of overall, in terms of the methane agreement, in terms of um, the finalisation of these really important carbon accounting rules, which allows the development of an international carbon market, so to join up the EU, the US and and the Chinese uh, carbon trading markets, sends a a pretty powerful signal, again, to all the big money that's waiting to make bets after COP. Yeah, and those messages have been reinforced also by the other announcement in the margins of the meeting, which is a commitment for, uh, I think, 90 countries have made to um, slash emissions of methane, which is a very powerful greenhouse gas, by 30% by 2030 relative to 2020 levels. Again, a message to fossil fuel industries more broadly that uh, the momentum is now accelerating for the transition from fossil fuels to renewables. And just finally, as, as we're talking, I think that Biden and Xi are just wrapping up their meeting. I just wanted to make the point that those two heads of state meeting right after COP, you know, a meeting which she didn't attend, um, obviously to the consternation of many. Just the fact that those two heads of state are meeting and there'll be things on the agenda other than than, um, climate change as well, I also think sends a a market signal. I mean, the market looking very closely at how those two countries are going to cooperate on uh, climate mitigation. Yeah. And energy transition. And John Kerry and the Chinese negotiator are old friends. They've been meeting regularly for, I think, over a decade. And just the the optics are important. They're not everything. And they can often disguise more than they clarify. But um, in this case, when they walked into the General Assembly Hall in Glasgow, Kerry had his arm around his Chinese colleague. And it's an important message, uh, partly because it suggests, even though the commitments were not very uh, specific, that it's possible to cooperate on climate, even when there are other areas in which um, clearly the US and China are at odds. So that was an encouraging development. We'll see whether the meetings that uh, further progress can be developed and uh, whether we'll see more specific uh, commitments on the part of the Chinese. 
It could be highly likely in the sense that both EU and China are obviously in the middle of a bit of an energy crisis, very high energy prices, and also at the end of a whole bunch of economic COVID exhaustion um, at the same time, which makes them a little bit vulnerable at the moment, a little bit shaky on, on some measures. But that will change um, over the next yeah. year. Let's, let's wrap up with uh, quick comments on Australia's positions in all of these yeah. discussions. So... The COP agreed, all countries, including Australia, agreed in effect to uh, see if they could be more ambitious on their 2030 targets by next year. Well, uh, I think most of the National Party has rejected that. I think we had um, Barnaby Joyce saying that uh, there's no way we're going to increase our 2030 figure. So that's that'll be interesting to see how that plays out politically. Mm. Clearly, the Labour Party, I would expect now to increase it, when when uh, Albanese does announce uh, his the, his party's climate commitments, I would be very surprised if it didn't include a much more ambitious 2030 target. Can't even be it has to be more ambitious than 20, than 35 percent, because Scott Morrison has already mm-hmm. said that that is likely to be achieved, even if it's not a formal target that he's willing to set. So I would expect 40 percent and 45 percent possibly as well in line with what the UN has said overall needs to happen, mm. 45% reduction by 2030. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And of course, Australia really needs to look very carefully at its exposure, its systemic exposure, talking about the way that systemic change happens again, slowly at first, and then sort of it drops off a cliff. Uh, we need to remain cognizant that, um, that that change could happen more quickly than we think. Well, so much to talk about, not enough time. We're going to have to wrap it up there. Thank you so much, Robert, again, for chatting about all things climate in the wake of... Thank you too, Anastasia. Look forward to our continuing discussions on this topic. Indeed. As society's reliance on technology continues to grow, regulating and securing digital tech becomes increasingly important. Dr. Tegan Westendor speaks to Professor Jeannie Patterson from the University of Melbourne. They explore the need to regulate digital technology in a way that aligns with democratic values. Thanks so much for joining me today, Jeannie. How are you doing? I'm delighted to be here, Tegan. So a host of bills have been passed in recent years that represent an effort to better govern and police digital tech and cyberspace, which present both opportunities for negatives like crime and possible government abuse of power, and also positives like presenting solutions to existing and emerging security requirements and protecting democratic values. So we often end up in this sort of binary policy debate of security versus liberty, and which one of these is more important. Now, in light of this, today we're chatting about how to achieve appropriate regulation of digital tech in accordance with democratic values, while still ensuring an enabling regulatory environment for innovation, which really sounds like the bread and butter of Cade from what I understand. So I might kick off by asking, what does Cade do? And do you and Cade have a different approach to navigating these challenges? Thanks, Tegan. Well, Cade, um, which is the Centre for AI and Digital Ethics at the University of Melbourne, is a cross-disciplinary research, teaching and policy centre. And we focus on AI and digital ethics. And what that means is that we think that understanding AI, digital technologies and the ethics of the use of those technologies is the first step to socially valuable innovation and effective regulation. And I think our difference um, between a lot of work that's being done is that we're robustly cross-disciplinary, and there are 
other centres that are doing this and we, we just think that's the best approach. We think that if we can draw on the insights of not just computer scientists or lawyers, but also philosophers or artists or scholars from the humanities, then we're going to get the most agile, effective and creative responses to the challenges that are posed by these technologies. Can you explain a little more about what it means to start with the technology and on a case-by-case -case basis then figure out how to regulate it appropriately? And can you perhaps give us an example? I sure can. So a lot of the discussion about digital technology generally and AI specifically takes place at a rather abstract level. People worry about whether we're going to have robots as judges or robots running government, where technology is not really at that space at the moment. And what, so what we think is useful to do is to look at specific applications of the technology and think about its operation in the context it's going to be used. We think it's really important to understand the technology and also the context and the objectives of its use. And that allows us to ask the important questions like, why are you using this technology? Is there another option? <laughs> Which is, we might laugh, but that's actually often the starting place. Um, if we know specifically why the technology is needed, we probably have a better insight on how it can be regulated. So technology is always a tool for achieving human objectives um, and purposes, and we need to see it in that light, but I think also understand its distinct character, how it affects the humans who are interacting with it. It's not frictionless, even though it's used in the um, pursuit of human goals. Now, you wanted a couple of examples, so I've got two for you. Um, the first one would be facial recognition technology, which is often brought up in discussions about civil liberties and AI rightly so. Now, facial recognition technology can be really useful when we're using it for, say, airport scanning, because it links one picture to one identity. And we're probably familiar with going through those airport scanners, which look at our face and match it to our passports. It becomes more risky when we're using it in the context of what's called one-to-many. That's using facial recognition technology to identify a face in a crowd. So, for example, scanning a uh, people in the underground or um, going to a sporting match and trying to see if there's people there who are known terrorists or criminals or taking some sort of fuzzy um, footage from some sort of crime and trying to match it up with a person from a database. So that's trying to sort of match a large number of images to a large number of people. Now, the problem here is that it's just often inaccurate. Facial recognition technology is great recognise it matching one face to one identity. It's not so good in one to many. Um, it's quite inaccurate often and it's often quite biased in the sense that it's poorer at recognising the faces of women or people of colour. Now, those are technical problems, bias, um, accuracy. They can be fixed, but the reason we need to both understand the technology and the ethical consequences is that even if we can fix that, those problems of inaccuracy or bias, we still might want to ask whether it's a good thing to be using facial recognition technology. We might ask, for example, whether privacy is really important and whether the objectives in using the technology outweigh that important right to privacy. I personally am particularly worried by the use of facial recognition, recognition technology in schools. There's some interest in using facial recognition technology in schools to take the role and also to identify where children are at any particular time. Now, obviously, we do need to know where children are, but that's kind of the job that teachers have performed. And in performing that job, they build relationships with the children that they are looking after. If we have facial recognition technology 
scanning schoolyards instead of teachers. What does that do for those important teacher-student relationships? And more often, it teaches children that it's okay growing up being monitored. So I think that we need to think really carefully about really whether that's the kind of society we want to be living in. That's not to say there's not other justifications for the technology, but merely making the point that we need to think very carefully about it, even if we can fix the sort of technical problems of bias and inaccuracy, which are big problems. It's such a great point to remind ourselves that while we're so busy thinking about all of the brilliant innovations and opportunities that technology like AI will bring, to remind ourselves to think about what we might be compromising in terms of this idea about interpersonal relationships and how important they are to, like your example of students in the classroom, and that there's so so much um, knowledge about the variation with which different children respond to different pedagogies and how important having the teacher being in charge of that kind of relationship is to the success for different students. So AI is a is a really broad term is is another point that I'm getting from this and and what's currently available and in use is just part of what we think about when we hear AI and it, it we're really not at the sort of matrix or ex machina ideas that I think our minds often fly to when we talk about AI because it's very shiny and exciting. Now I understand that there are limits to the tech in terms of explainability and transparency that make it really difficult to regulate it. Yeah, that's right. When we think about AI, we often think about those movie examples. And sometimes people describe that as general AI or even the singularity where the um, artificial intelligence outperforms people in all respects. But we're nowhere near that at the moment. We're really looking at the moment at examples of specific AI. And some people prefer not to use the term at all. So what we're really talking about is a variety of uses of software or computer programs or algorithms um, to do things for humans, but to do it in a way that's perhaps semi-autonomous. Computer programs follow human instructions, but often find their own way there in very different terms. And that's kind of the idea behind techniques like machine learning or neural networks. Another way to think about that, this though, is its impact on humans. So a lot of the concern about digital technologies or AI is about their impact on us, and in particular what's called algorithmic decision-making. This is the idea that computer programs or software inform decisions that impact on human or individual rights. So that might be decisions about whether a person gets access to a social security benefit, whether they get a job, whether they have a disease or illness, and what sort of treatment they should get. And that's really where I think the, the sort of focus of concern about AI comes, because on the one hand, we might get more objective, consistent, efficient decisions by using algorithmic processes. But on the other hand, often those processes, particularly when we're using, say, neural networks, are very opaque. It's hard to know the basis on which the decision was made, and therefore it's hard to scrutinise whether the decision was a good decision, consistent, effective, fair, or whether perhaps it was informed by bias or even just nonsense. And that's really, I think, where the challenge of regulation lies. And that's precisely, I think, where insights that come from both philosophy, ethics, computer science, and the law can be really useful in working out how we can harness the value of these technologies without losing ourselves in some sort of great unknown of a, of a black box that determines our um, rights of access to all sorts of things. 
Absolutely. I think that question of the visibility of what you mentioned as either bias or perhaps even nonsense is so interesting at this point where, for example, Queensland police are looking at possible implementation of AI algorithms to flag cases that are at higher risk of some of the high profile domestic violence cases that we've seen over the last few years. The idea that a police strategy couldn't confidently say what is informing that AI's decision-making process is really concerning. Absolutely. And what we know is that if we can come up with strategies for what we sometimes turn ex-ante or before the event happens interventions, that's going to be a great thing. We don't want to wait to there's bad outcomes and then, then respond. But the problem with putting a lot of reliance on algorithmic processes is that often We don't know how they work. We don't know the correlations that are being made. And the history of predictive policing, which is what that strategy is of identifying in advanced domestic violence perpetrators, the history of predictive policing is that it tends to fall in an unjustifiable way on people who are poor, people who come from non-WASP or Anglo-Saxon backgrounds, Um, people who are Indigenous or people of colour. So the consequences of those sort of strategies, we know from looking at past examples, are not great. And so we really would want to be very careful about scrutinising the transparency of that process before we implement it. And in fact, here we go to that question that I asked earlier, why are you using it and what alternatives are available? Because it's possible that building relationships in communities between police, domestic violence experts might be a more effective way of dealing with that problem than some unknowable black box, potentially biased algorithm. And that perhaps obscures problems that are in either the civil courts or the criminal justice courts that could and should be addressed to avoid those red flag cases flying under the radar until something really terrible happens. Precisely, yeah. So lastly, in terms of AI being one of the technologies that governments are looking at to solve solutions, both in terms of security threats and the more mundane problem of analysing the huge amount of data that it's possible and in some cases permitted to collect in this age. Now, the EU passed the GDPR in 2018, and given Australia has no current law that applies specifically to AI systems, it's a really interesting example of what's being trialled and established internationally as best practice. So do you think there are key insights that Australia should be taking note of and implementing, looking at the GDPR, that can help safely navigate this balancing act between enabling innovation and ethically and reliably regulating it? Absolutely. So um, as you know, Tegan, the Privacy Act in Australia is currently going through a review process. And I think it's quite likely that lessons from the GDPR will be incorporated into our Privacy Act, things like quite robust rights for for individuals, um, processes for consent to data processing and the like. There's also a draft EUAI Act which um, tries to forefront some of these requirements of transparency and explainability in the uses of AI. Um, So I think these are all important initiatives. I'd also make the point that those who are at the forefront of the development of technology, particularly social media companies, digital platforms, they don't sit in one country. 
they're international in their effects. So it's really important that any laws that are passed in Australia are consistent with, are coherent in respect to what's being done overseas. This is not the time for each nation to innovate. It's the time for each nation to try and enact uniform laws or at least compatible laws so that they can be effective in keeping people safe while, as you say, also unleashing the beneficial uses of AI and digital technologies. Thanks so much for joining me today, Jeannie. I think conversations like this are really invaluable for moving policy discussions past this roadblock of debating whether we value security or liberty more, when clearly we need both and need to invest in these new and innovative ways of thinking about digital ethics. It's been a pleasure. It's been good to talk to you, Tegan. And if I can do one piece of um, forward casting, which would be that there's a lot of misinformation on the internet now and I think that new technologies have a way of perhaps empowering um, individuals to seek out reliable, useful information that's suited to their needs. Couldn't agree more. Thank you. Ciao. Nathan Rusa and Barney Grewell have recently released a report looking at the increasing border tensions between China and India in the Doklam region. Their groundbreaking work uses open-source satellite imagery to develop a unique 3D view of the mountainous region to help viewers understand the strategic importance of the roads and military infrastructure being established by both sides. Hi, Nathan. Hi. Today, we're going to talk about our new project, a 3D deep dive into the India-China border. So India-China border tensions have become one of the Indo-Pacific's defining territorial disputes, specifically after the 2020 border conflict in eastern Ladakh. Can you tell us why, instead of Ladakh, we've chosen to focus on the Doklam region in this project? The clashes in Ladakh sort of threw into threw that border um, conflict into the world's attention. And what we saw there was the first fatalities along the border in many decades, I believe. But we wanted to sort of look at the, the tension that's existed for a lot longer across the border. So there has been these sort of deconfliction efforts and these um, attempts to sort of draw up and build confidence along the border from both sides. But what we have seen in the last five or ten years is is a lot of tension all along that border. So we wanted to focus on the Doklam region, which is sort of this tri-border junction between India, China and Bhutan. And in 2017, um, it was quite a major standoff where Indian troops entered Chinese-occupied Bhutanese territory to um, stop the construction of infrastructure along to this strategic, this strategic ridge that overlooked um, much of the rest of India. And so we, we wanted to focus on this to sort of draw attention to the legacy of tension and the legacy of almost conflict along that border and sort of ex- try to explain that strategic side of it. The reason that India felt it so necessary to enter Bhutanese territory and sort of stop this road construction. And that that's a thing that I think a lot of policymakers and a lot of people that were sort of just observing the events weren't able to really easily perceive when you sort of look at it from this top-down perspective, the, the, the strategic importance of the Docklam region. So we sort of wanted to explain that and use that as a vehicle to talk about the underlying tensions that exist along the China-India border. Yeah, I think... You're right. When we talk about India-China border tensions in 2021, people obviously focus on the 2020 border conflict in Ladakh, which led to the deaths of Indian and Chinese soldiers. Sort of the tensions at the border have been brewing since 2017 in Doklam, which we can see as sort of 
the lead up to the 2020 conflict, and then in 2013 as well, uh, with another standoff. We know that in Doklam in 2017, the um, standoff ended in a disengagement agreement, but your findings and the findings of the project, how do you see the disengagement? Did it impact the sort of strategic drivers in that area? Or do you see those um, imperatives for India and China still uh, existing? Yeah, so I think the the limited disengagements that we've seen all along the India-China border are a good first step, and they sort of make the they make the likelihood of deadly conflict occurring again lower. And those frontline disarmament campaigns are nothing but good news in sort of preventing conflict. But what we've seen is that those disengagement um, agreements generally do little to address the the underlying strategic competition that we see along the border, and sort of. What what we see in Doklam is that although both sides are willing to sort of negotiate on the, the tactical disengagement, it seems as though both sides sort of aren't willing to compromise when it comes to what they consider their strategic imperative. So one of the things that we see in Doklam quite importantly is that the whole standoff was sparked by this road construction along the India border looking at in the direction of this strategic ridge. And so the the standoff stopped that and the disengagement stopped that what we saw in the following years was that China sort of just started building another road a bit further back, about five kilometers back from the border, but the same direction. And sort of that goes to show, although there can be sort of negotiations and um, disengagement along the border at this tactical level, what we see is that both sides are still sort of pushing towards this cliff of of, of um, competition, at least, where these two strategic interests do come head to head, and these will be harder to negotiate away. Yes. And um, like we saw in the 2020 standoff, the infrastructure buildup across the border has been the trigger for a lot of these face-to-face standoffs between soldiers, where Indian and Chinese soldiers are reaching areas which they didn't have access to probably a few years ago even. Um, Can you tell us a bit more about the Chinese road building in that area and why it's so important for India? Yeah, so a lot of China's strategy when it comes to potential border conflicts is just the ability to inject troops really fast into areas where there is conflict. And we saw that sort of in the 2020 clashes in Ladakh where within a week of the sort of original clashes, you had thousands of units right back along that border ready to ready to do whatever they needed to do. And so because of this, road building is really seen as the, the, the key driver that allows this sort of escalation, if you will. And so because of that, India is quite concerned about Chinese road building, especially sort of in this particular area of Dockland that we looked at, because it does sort of give over that position gives overview of what's known as the um, chicken neck in China. It's sort of this this very small patch of land about 20 kilometers across that separates Bangladesh from Nepal and allows um, this very bottleneck of Indian territory. And so this this road sort of approached that bottleneck, approached that viewshed over the bottleneck and sort of has driven this really considerable concern about what Chinese occupation of that ridge would allow them to do if there was any sort of future escalation, especially in northeastern India. And I think our findings show, especially um, like you mentioned previously, is that despite the border 
disengagement agreement in 2017, despite India stepping in, it said it's stepping in um, on behalf of Bhutan and stopping that road construction with the Chinese. The Chinese have just come around in another, what you we call the rear road in the project. And uh, we've documented the progress um, of the construction of that rear, rear road using satellite uh, imagery. So like Nathan mentioned, that underlying tension of, in this case, road infrastructure buildup in that area remains. But Nathan, can you tell us a bit more about how you mapped out the construction of the rear road using satellite imagery? Yeah, so I think what was really important to do in this particular project was to showcase the terrain and the strategic importance of different parts of terrain. And that's sort of why we chose this 3D approach rather than just conventional maps, because we wanted to sort of provide any end user with almost, with in fact, this this 3D model that they could sort of explore around and see the strategic importance and the strategic interests of both parties. And so the way that we did that was we, we, we downloaded a lot of um, commercially available satellite imagery, including what was um, quite publicly accessible on Google Earth, and in many ways just draped that over this 3D terrain model that allowed you to sort of look at these tri-border junctions and look at these strategic ridges and see the relative importance of them. We also annotated these satellite imageries and sort of plotted out all the points and all the roads that we saw being constructed along for the past few years. And in the end, that ended up within a few kilometres of the border, there being about a couple of thousand Chinese positions and about almost 6,000 Indian positions along the border. And these include sort of frontline pillboxes and trenches and sort of support buildings. But you can see that this is sort of a highly militarised border along the, the Docklam region, and it's become increasingly militarised since the standoff in 2017. Yes, that's right. And um, apart from the road infrastructure, we've mapped out um, additional Chinese observation towers, which... Um, the Chinese military, which will help the Chinese military sort of bridge that gap um, with India's traditional territorial advantage in that region. Um, can you tell us a bit more about why these observation towers are important? Yeah, so so along the Docklam border, there's very much this tactical mismatch because India has sort of had positions in these areas for a lot longer, which means that they dominate sort of the the heights and the ridge lines especially along the border. They have these very um, good sight lines into Bhutanese and Chinese territory that's sort of the effect of them having positions along that border for many decades, whereas China is sort of much more of a newcomer to that border, having, having entered in sort of 2005 and built up slowly since then. So because of that, a lot of Chinese positions are sort of built to be hidden by the terrain. They're sort of on the backside of hills. They're sort of in the valleys where it's harder to see from the ridges. And because of this, China sort of has this very tactical disadvantage in the region that, that doesn't allow them to sort of see what India is doing and doesn't allow them a sort of strategic overwatch of the region in general. So that's sort of exemplified by that rear road that we were talking about. That's built on an aspect that can't be seen from Indian positions well. But to counter this sort of disadvantage, what they've started doing, especially since the standoff, is building these really quite tall observation towers at certain points. It allows them to bridge that gap and allows them to see into Indian territory more effectively. And of course, this isn't sort of a durable solution in conflict because it's sort of single points of failure, but it does allow them to bridge that tactical gap during the current moment. Yeah. In this project, we've focused on 
the Doklam region, and this is the phase one of our project. What do you think we should focus on in phase two? I believe it's important, um, as you've um, shown in our project, that the disengagement agreements like we've seen in the current ongoing 2020-21 border tensions don't change those um, that core strategic competition. So it's important to see where the disengagement agreements in Ladakh have changed that strategic competition or across the whole border really. But what do you think? Yeah, so I think there needs to be sort of an understanding of the risk factors along the border, whether it is sort of these build-ups that occur or whether it is sort of mismatching ideas of where the border actually occurs. I think there are a number of risk factors that that make outbreaks of conflict more likely. And although, um, and ideally stuff should be, work should be done to sort of reduce the strategic competition in the region and sort of undermine these tensions that sort of exist regardless of the um, peace building, the confidence building measures. But I think in the absence of that or while that is occurring, there needs to be more of an understanding of where these future risks of flashpoints are. So sort of all the disengagement agreements we've seen have been the result of there being conflict in the past. There being clashes occurring in this region and then both sides understanding that they need to deconflict here. But I think there needs to be more attention where that effort should go next and hopefully sort of a preventative way to prevent more of these outbreaks of conflict in the future while the strategic question gets answered. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks, yeah. That's a wrap on this episode. This week, you heard conversations with Anastasia Capetis, National Security Editor of The Strategist, and Dr. Robert Glasser, Head of ASPE's Climate and Security Policy Centre. Dr. Tegan Westendorf, analyst with ASPE Strategic Policing and Law Enforcement Program, and Professor Jeannie Patterson, Professor of Law at the University of Melbourne Centre for AI and Digital Ethics, and Nathan Rusa and Barney Grewell, researchers with ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.